Hello everyone, welcome to tonight's event at the Forum. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. Uh, the Forum is a non-profit educational organisation dedicated to putting on philosophy events and philosophy-related events. Uh, they're always free and that's thanks to the generosity of our donors and the support we get from the LSC for which we are very, very grateful indeed. If you'd like to help us continue to put on events like this, please do consider donating. You can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website where you will also find a large collection of podcasts of our previous events as well as essays from uh, contemporary philosophers on all sorts of interesting issues uh, in reward for your generosity. Um, this is being recorded for a podcast as well, so if you want to ask a question, do be aware that your voice will be recorded and put on the internet forevermore. Uh, and do wait for the roving mic to find you so that your voice is picked up for the recording. And uh, please turn off your phones as well, or turn off the sound on your phones at least. Feel free to tweet along. We have our very own hashtag, LSEFEP. I'll hand you over now to the chair for tonight's event, and thanks again for coming out. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this forum event on citizen science. My name's Peter Dennis, and I teach in the philosophy department here at LSE. Uh, it's often said that there's an increasing disconnect, if we're allowed to say disconnect, um, between science and the public, uh, that we no longer trust the experts, and citizen science is a proposal for what we might do about that. Uh, it's a proposal to overcome this, this disconnect. So we're going to be talking this evening about what this proposal really amounts to, and we're going to be evaluating its capacity for overcoming this disassociation between science and the public. And we've got quite a uh, varied and distinguished panel to discuss these questions. Uh, we have Alessandro Allegra on my far left. He's a former science policy advisor at the Royal Society and currently doctoral researcher at UCL. Uh, next, we have Beris Chanley, who's a researcher at St Anne's College, Oxford. Uh, we have Jenny Malloy who's a coordinator of two projects, the Synthetic Biology Strategic Research Initiative and Open Plant, which I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this evening at the University of Cambridge, and Stephen John, who's Hatton Senior Lecturer in Philosophy of Public Health at the University uh, of Cambridge. Um, so first of all, let's just start off with this question of a disconnect or disassociation between science and the public. To what extent do the panel agree that this is a real phenomenon, something that we're, that we're facing? Is it a new phenomenon? Um, and is it something we should be worried about? Uh, let's start with you. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I mean, I guess there are two questions which have been put forward. One is if there's some kind of fundamental tension between the goals of science and the goals of democracy. And the second question is a question of this disconnect. So to take those questions um, in that order... On the question of a fundamental tension between democracy and science, I take it there isn't any kind of fundamental problem here. And the reason for that is all decisions have two kinds of inputs. There's uh, value judgments, judgments about how the world should be, and fact judgments, judgments about how the world is arranged. And we need both kinds of judgments to make a decision. So um, <clears throat> if, I, if I want a banana, that doesn't lead me to any decision. If I know there's a banana in the fruit bowl, that doesn't lead me to any decision. But if I want a banana and I know there's a banana in the fruit bowl, that leads me to a decision to go to a fruit bowl. 
What's distinctive in democracy, uh, democratic decision-making, is the value part comes from the public. The public decides what it values. But, of course, knowing what you value isn't enough to make a good political decision. You need facts. Who will give you the facts? Well, in general, scientists are the people who decide on facts. So I take it at the most fundamental level. Science and democracy should work together. But there are at least two problems here. So in any democracy, if people are going to express their values in any sort of sensible way, they need to be well informed about the facts. If I care very deeply about climate change, but I'm just, I'm sorry, if I care very deeply about the environment, let's say, but I don't know that climate change is happening, then I might vote for a political party which doesn't represent my values. There's also a problem that any government decision is going to need input from scientists. And of course, the public need to be able to trust the scientists who are giving the input. If the public don't believe that scientists are people who are good at finding out the facts, then the public will feel that scientists are just another interest group, pushing policy one way, not a group who are providing useful factual information. So, of course, given all of that, even if there's no fundamental tension between science and democracy, there are going to be two troubling kinds of disconnect. One is when we have an ill-informed public, a public which just doesn't know the facts. And the other kind of disconnect is when we have a distrustful public, a public which doesn't think that scientists in general are good people to rely on for policy. But there are two problems here. Is the public ill-informed? Well, often people say they are. They'll you know, quote uh, statistics, facts, figures about ways in which scientists all believe blah, but the public doesn't believe blah. But, of course, interpreting those facts and figures is, I think, very difficult. And the reason it's difficult is that often the public have good reason not to listen to the scientific experts. They're not making a kind of straightforward factual error. So here are two examples which I'm very interested in. Um, imagine this scientist says, you know, the average man has this risk of prostate cancer. Should I believe that's my risk of prostate cancer? Of course not. Maybe I know all sorts of facts about my own family history, but uh, lots of men in my family have had prostate cancer, which leads me to believe my prostate cancer risk is much higher. In that sense, I disagree with the expert. I have a higher estimate of my risk, but I'm not being stupid or ill-informed. I'm reasoning, as it were, scientifically. Similarly, imagine a scientist tells me, it's scientifically certain the vaccine is safe. But I say, well, you know, scientifically certain... Well, the way you've done your statistical testing, there's still a chance what you say is wrong, and that chance is too high for me to vaccinate my child. Am I making a mistake? No. I'm just reasoning about the facts, and I'm just employing a different standard of certainty. So I take it that interpreting claims that the public is ill-informed is going to be very difficult. What about this issue about the public trusting scientists? Well, again, this is very complicated. And to see why, note, but what we don't want from the public. We don't just want blind trust in scientists. We don't want people who say, scientist says it, oh, of course I trust it. That's unintelligent. That's not part of what's involved in being a good citizen. We want people to place intelligent trust. But, of course, placing an intelligent trust requires us, the public, to have a view of how science works. And here's a problem. 
maybe our views of how science should work don't really reflect how science does work. So in these cases, we have this interesting phenomenon. We might end up mistrusting scientists when, in fact, the scientists are trustworthy. But our mistrust is kind of rational for us. It's rational for us because the scientists look to be doing something funny. Now, you might think, hold on, hold on. That sounds a bit strange. So, um, so let me give you an example. Um, a few years ago now, there was this big scandal, in inverted commas, because various um, e- uh, emails were released from the Climate Change Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. Those emails, if you talk to people who work in climate science, you talk to lots of scientists, they say, that's just how science works. Yeah? These emails don't show anything particularly problematic, particularly you know, unusual going on. That's just how scientific work goes on. But you look at the public representation of the emails, and people will say, yeah, that's shocking, that's scandalous. These scientists are trying to close down dissent, but science is full of dissent, we should respect dissent. Or they'll say, those scientists were fudging the data. Good scientists don't fudge your data. What's going on there? Well, I take it that the public has a view of how science works, don't fudge your data, always tolerate dissent, and in fact, that's just not how science works. Is the public stupid in that case? I'm not certain they are. I'm not certain they are because often scientists themselves tell stories of how science works, which don't really reflect the nitty-gritty inner workings of science. So, of course, when we open it up to public view, we foster a kind of mistrust. So what I've tried to say is I don't think there's a kind of fundamental disconnect between science and democracy, but there are lots and lots and lots of problems at the cusp of science and democracy. And resolving those problems is going to be very difficult because the more we open up science, well, it's not clear that the more we open up science, the greater trust we generate. I take it that's one of the key problems we have here. What do other people think? If I can chip in, I just want to elaborate on the second of the two points you made, the one about trust and about sort of like what image the public has of science, what image the scientists project of science. And I do think that although there is not necessarily a disconnect between the idea of science there is, and, and democracy, there is a disconnect between the practice of institutionalized academic science and that ideal that we, we often hold in the sense that, like, most science uh, in universities these days is done within a very specific framework of incentives, of rewards, of goals, which are very different from that ideal picture of the scientist being someone uninterested in worldly matters who just seeks the truth uh, in, a, you know, in, in an ideal world. Well, first science requires a lot of money these days, so there is big financial stakes in it. And, uh, in universities, this is largely publicly funded, at least in the UK, uh, and the sort of incentives that scientists and researchers more in general have is to produce more data and more very narrow, small steps that allow them to publish something on a scientific journal which will get them a certain reward in terms of career, in terms of the next grant, and that's the way that the institutional model has been built uh, and has evolved. The problem is that this pushes uh, science in a very specific direction, which might well not be the one that uh, we as a collectivity uh, have, and even scientists often portray the, what the goal of science are in a very different way from what they actually are once it becomes an institutionalized endeavor. So the question is, like, how can this be 
realigned or in a way like reconnected, uh, there is a lot of debate within the scientific community uh, whether the current system of how we do science is fit for purpose, whether it produces uh, useful knowledge, whether it produces reliable knowledge, and whether it actually serves uh, wider societal purposes. I mean, eventually, as a lot of this research is funded with public money, it's quite legitimate for uh, people to ask, is my money being spent well? This money could be spent on healthcare, it could be spent on defense, it could be spent on social welfare. And a big part of my job when I was at the Royal Society was to make a case for why the government should invest in, in, in science and research. Uh, and I have lots of really good arguments why the government should invest in science and research. But I'm sure that someone working in the healthcare sector has very good arguments for why that money should be spent in that sector. And it's, it's a very limited pot of money that governments have available. So uh, if the goals of academic science are very narrow and only determined by its own structures, then it, there's bound to be a disconnect between uh, the, the, the public and science, in a way, in, in, in that very specific uh, context. So is there a general consensus on the panel that the public might be distrustful of science, but they might be right and and rational to do so, to be distrustful? Um, well, I, I would say that the public haven't trusted scientists for almost as long as there have been scientists. <laughs> um, so uh, maybe it's the case that there's nothing particularly unique about this moment. Um, so you can go back to the 19th century and the phrase, there are uh, liars, damned liars, and it used to end scientific experts. It's the triplet to end that. Um, and... Um, you know, there are plenty of good reasons for the public to be concerned about what science has brought to them through the 20th century. So, you know, there's a very well-run route through flamidamide, the, the nuclear bomb, various bad things that have occurred from science. But at the same time, there's a great passion for science in public. And so the, the scientific biography has been a, a staple bestseller for much of the century and into the 21st century. Um, and Another thing that's um, militating against this idea of a disjuncture is the fact that very many people now have science degrees. Um, I went through my first undergraduate degree at a time when the Blair government was encouraging everyone to take a degree, and STEM degrees were very important. And those things link together, I think, in some senses. So... I would say the public are sceptical about science and they're right to be sceptical about science and we should take them seriously on that and so um, scholars have recently begun to look um, uh, Conray and uh, Naomi Oreskes have recently published on the way in which big tobacco uh, climate science has been manipulated specifically by corporations like ExxonMobil um, so those things are worth taking seriously um, but at the same time, there is this shared wonderment, this, this joy in research, uh, which seems to bring the public and scientists back together on very many occasions. I think I'd like to pick up on the point about um, it not being clear that opening up the science leads to increased public trust, because there is a big drive across um, lots of learned societies and also... Um, lots of learning societies and also research councils to make sure that um, scientific research is published transparently and accessible to more people. And if we have a populace that are more able to read and understand some of that science. Um, but actually, I think to pick up on the point about institutional 
frameworks, a lot of that published science is essentially advertising for next grants and kind of what you get in a paper is that is there is a big disjuncture even as a scientist between what you see in a paper and like you say the background work um, and I think it's perhaps that is becoming more obvious um, as people are both understanding more about the process of doing science but also more of the kind of raw material is being um, prioritised for publication and kind of is being more transparent through data sets and various other means. I mean I think somewhere that um I think it's Martin Redwick says somewhere that um, looking at a scientific paper to understand what scientists are doing is like looking at a peace treaty to understand what happened in the negotiations. Mm-hmm. You know, a peace treaty doesn't tell you anything about what really happened. It's, you know, I think there is, so, I mean, maybe this is where one of the key problems comes in. There's the, kind of the front-facing bit of science. And maybe that's also the part which you know, is the exciting part which we all feel wonderment at when we read the results, we read the papers, we read them in simplified form, but then there's also the drudge work of what actually happens behind the scenes. And of course, there's always a problem that, you know, it's like if you go to a theatre, what you see on the stage is wonderful, but if you could see what was going on backstage, it might just look a bit odd. And the worry here is that precisely what you get in science sometimes is once the backstage is opened up, what's on stage somehow seems less impressive. And maybe it should be. You know, maybe you know, the correct response is to think, wow, you know, they, they made this happen? using that, in the same way you might go to a play and say, well, they made this effect just using two people backstage and yet somehow that doesn't happen in the scientific case. Not always, anyway. And I don't know why not. Uh, Can I build on this analogy? Uh, I think, like, this is true up to a point in the sense that when you put up a theatre show, you are doing that eventually for the audience, or at least, you know, everything that happens in the backstage is functional to what the audience will see, what happens on stage, while actually what I think happens in academic science is that all efforts are directed at putting up a show, but the show is not for the 500 people in the audience, but for those 10 colleagues of yours who are actually like sitting in the front row uh, because they're your mates, and no matter if everyone else in the room does not understand, does not care about what you're doing, because those are the people who decide whether you get the next grant or the next promotion or whether you can continue doing your science. And that's, that's a problem. This idea of the public face of science is quite interesting because I suppose it's not the abstract of the research article that's the public face. I suppose it's a long way down the road. Most of those research, research articles are hidden behind paywalls, difficult to access, and even if you could access them, difficult to understand. Mm, mm, And maybe a related problem to a kind of public face and impressing the people is, of course, scientists then have all sorts of incentives to over-promise or over-claim what's going to happen. And then, of course, when that doesn't happen, that's bound to breed a certain kind of mistrust. Think about the Human Genome Project. It's promised it's going to cure all these diseases. And then it doesn't. And then people say, well, don't, don't worry, it wasn't really going to cure all the diseases. And so, but, you know, if, if someone is constantly telling you, I'm going to do something amazing, and then what they do is actually just pretty good, not amazing, well, that breeds a certain kind of distrust. But of course, saying what you're going to do is going to be amazing may be necessary to get the funding. So precisely the incentive structures, Alessandro was saying, creates these kinds of incentives to act in ways which might breed a kind of mistrust or a kind of problem, um, which I take to be a, a further worry here. I think there's, um, there's something of a buy-in problem as well. So we're, we're all very much invested in democracy 
uh, and in science. Um, and these tend to be treated somewhat like uh, processes uh, with almost guaranteed results. So if one cranks the democracy machine, more fairness will ensue. And if you crank the science machine, then <laughs> truth will uh, come out of the other end in sausage shapes. Um, but if you talk to scientists and politicians and they're off time in this kind of second conversation that occurs within their own communities and spaces, um, they'll tell you that things are very much more provisional than that. And so with the Human Genome Project, one of the, the big things that came out is, guess what, we've only got a fraction of the number of genes that we thought we had, and much, much less than a potato. And that was actually a very exciting thing. Uh, that scientific misapprehension then became a fulcrum for a new understanding of epigenetics and other scientific effects. Um, so, um, yeah, in some ways I would, I would say that the, the key would be to broaden that education of the processual nature of both science and democracy. And so to show those backstage workings. Um, and... It's something to do with the English educational system, the way we're set up, but uh, mostly we get taught things a, a certain way up until a certain level, let's say uh, A-level, and then at degree level you're taught another set of facts, and then once you complete your degree you're told these were but mere approximations of the truth, and now you will discover uh, the real truth of the, the matter. Um, and so maybe uh, uh, more attention to epistemology, uh, to thinking about thinking, um, would be uh, opposite in these cases. I want to pick up on something that you said, Stephen, uh, that there isn't a real fundamental tension between science and democracy. I wonder if others on the panel agree, because, I mean, here's one way you could try to set up this tension is to say that democracy requires citizens to exercise their autonomy, their political autonomy, but then there's no point in exercising political autonomy, sort of deciding for yourself, unless you're also able to think for yourself and make up your own mind about what the evidence says in different cases. So that seems to be what democracy requires of us. But then science, at least if we're not scientists ourselves, that requires us to let somebody else do some thinking for us. So I believe that climate change is occurring, not because I've examined the evidence and, and believe it, but because experts say that it's happening. So I have a kind of almost blind faith in them. And that seems to be sort of doing the opposite of what democracy requires me to do. I mean, another way to think of it is that they're both activities which can be both participative and representative. Um, and I don't think there's anything necessarily antagonism or um, uh, about those two systems that mean they have to both be representative or have to both be participative. Uh, we could imagine a participative democracy that is fueled by policy created by a participative knowledge generation system. Uh, we just happen to have the system that we have. <laughs> I mean, it's also on that point, I mean, it becomes tricky, but of course we can, we can autonomously give up our autonomy. I mean, that is tricky, but, you know, I mean, I could choose to let my wife choose what we're going to do tomorrow, and that's, in some sense, that I've given up my autonomy. But if I autonomously chose, and I might think, you know, I just, oh, I, 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 just, I just don't want to think about this. It's too much hard work. I want to focus on, you know, I don't know, something more interesting for me. Right. So of course, but would you let her choose how to vote tomorrow? 
Maybe, maybe she's she's a lot wiser than I am. <laughs> but um, no, no, I mean, I could see, I, I could see the worry. I could see yeah. the worry. But, but yeah. yeah, we let politicians choose how to vote for us, for you. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's built into a political system in some way. Um, but yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's very hard work being autonomous all of the time. Um, and that's that's not a throwaway comment. It really is hard work. So there are good reasons to give it away sometimes. If I can build on that, uh, I think an interesting difference is that both in science and in politics we delegate autonomy, but for different reasons, in the sense that when we elect someone to go into parliament and vote for us, we elect them because uh, I imagine that we feel that they have, that we share their values. Uh, well, if we uh, sort of like alienate our autonomy to another scientist because basically we, we trust what they say, it's because we share the same epistemic values with them. So we uh, accept the fact that we both share the same uh, approach to knowledge in a certain systematic way, and therefore, if we take that for granted, we can accept what they say because we share that set of values. But those are different sets of values in a way. Uh, it, you will probably not vote a politician in office necessarily only because of what they know, but probably because of what they believe being right and wrong, basically, so because of their moral values, uh, this might not actually be the case often, or they might say they think something while they actually don't, but at least in principle, uh, I can see why there are sort of like two different sets of values that uh, can lead us to uh, sort of like delegate uh, autonomy. Well, let's move on from this disconnect, if there is indeed a, a disconnect, and uh, move on from the problem to the solution. Jenny, you're the scientist uh, on the panel, so let's perhaps turn to you. What is citizen science, and how is it supposed to solve the problem? So um, citizen science has a whole spectrum of ways of encouraging citizens to participate in the scientific process. So at its fundament, it's supposed to be showing the backstage workings and getting people involved at different stages of the research process. Um, but sometimes that can be in a fairly guided and not very autonomous way. So um, quite frequently, citizen science projects are encouraging members of the public to gather data. So a lot of eco ecological studies, um, some of you may even have participated in um, natural recording. Um, that's, a, that's a citizen science activity that's had a very long history in the UK, um, over a century of natural history groups getting together, walking along particular transects and counting um, the biodiversity of their area. Um, and that's exploded since we've got now the internet and smartphones. We can take photos on the go. We can analyse and look at images from other people. Um, so, so there's a lot of data collection that um, that's kind of distributed groups are being used to, to gather. Um, but it's somewhat rarer that those same groups would then go on to analyse that data and come up with distribution maps for the UK, think about the conservation policy implications. Um, and then if we move along after the data's been collected, there are other citizen science projects which really take citizens to do... Some of the data analysis, although more often it's coding up the data, so you may be familiar with Zooniverse, which is a, a huge online platform with um, many hundreds of thousands of users that analyse galaxies and determine if they're one of diff five different types of galaxy. They have um, applications where you can uh, identify species, applications where you can transcribe interesting historical documents. Um, and so that's, again, using the distributed crowd of the of the public to input into science but yet again people are 
providing data to scientists and at some point at the end of a long process a paper will come which they probably can't read because it's probably behind a paywall um, and so so a lot of the citizen science projects that we see do involve citizens in in small parts of the scientific process but I'd argue that the majority of them are not really showing the backstage workings in any meaningful way but what they are the intention is really to get to increase public um, interest and, and to an extent understanding of the science and, and often these are accompanied by educational programs by outreach programs by information online and that's great but there are other projects which are really looking at how you get people engaged in the process of um, gathering analyzing and taking meaning from the data in a slightly more um, whole way. So, for example, um, some citizen science projects that come out of um, environmental justice movements, for example, are looking at environmental sensing, water quality sensing, looking at air pollution, um, looking at uh, heavy metal contamination in different areas. Um, And a lot of that more, that science that stems from a grassroots um, political activism and a need for facts in order to take um, evidence to policymakers to try and influence some change in your own community. Um, that type of citizen science tends to have more involvement at all stages of the process. Um, and so there are quite a few examples in the US. There's one group called Public Lab who do a lot of this type of work. And they work with communities who essentially are getting sick because of something in their environment. Um, and they'll often uh, look at very low-cost devices and sensors that they can work together to craft, create, go out, sense the data, gather it together, take, take meaning from it and use it as evidence. I think the part of the problem is then what happens at that point um, because the standard of evidence that a government department may have for actually enacting change may be somewhat different from the level of evidence that citizens are able to provide. Um, And even if the level of evidence is sufficient, whether that actually leads to political action and leads to benefit to those people is also questionable. So, um, And that that can kind of be quite... um, disempowering in some ways in that you're you're going you think you have all that you need and actually the political process gets in the way and quite often these people could be going against surveys that have already been conducted but maybe they were by scientists that um not only work for government but also could be employed by industry who are creating the contamination issues in the first place this is quite a problem in communities around mines the mine assessors will say there's no problem <laughs> but that's not what the local communities feel and and sometimes it's not backed up by the data that they collect either so I think there's um, there's different levels of citizen science different levels of participation and different levels of going behind the curtain and seeing the people running around with two coconuts making the horse noises um, so they it's clearly a system that has potential for people to understand the inner workings and also the kind of the the uncertainties that come with doing science and the statistical um, analysis that you have to to make you know not all readings are going to be uniform so so that kind of system is is potentially has has a lot of has a good role to play um, but I think I would say those projects at the moment are in the minority of what the kind of larger grouping of citizen science projects have to offer um, and I'm interested in. You know, if the panel has other examples to, to bring to the table on that um, side of things. And so I guess I'm, I'm optimistic that a lot of these projects could really kind of show people 
and, and, and empower people to do science and scientific investigations themselves. So one thing I'm interested in is biology and enabling technologies for biology, making them lower cost, more accessible um, for people to perform biological experiments um, either in community labs or at home. And there's a growing movement for people to explore in a DIY sense um, biology. And so some of the initiatives like OpenPlant are producing open source um, biological tools and materials from scientific equipment through to biological reagents and through to protocols as well for people to do things. Um, I think we're very much in the infancy of that particular brand of citizen science and I'm very excited to see where it goes. Um, so far, there have been quite a few groups that have explored and done some really interesting creative um, work with artists and designers, and some who've gone forward to make small startup companies. Um, but there's, 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 I'd say, not in that particular space, not huge evidence for an influence on policy at this stage. Um, but I, yes, I'm, I'm interested to see where we head. I'd like to make a philosophical point, sort of like uh, following up on this, which is that uh, science tends to work by finding general causal explanations for events, and usually the more general, the better. So a, a theory that can explain more, it's usually considered to be like a better scientific theory uh, because it, it can cover like a wide variety of instances. But when it comes to policy interventions, you need to know the specific causal uh, mechanisms that are at work in that specific context. And of course, having the general understanding is very useful, but it's not enough. And if the, again, the reward mechanisms of science tend to promote only or mostly the general high-level understanding, then there will be a gap in knowledge. And especially in those instances, uh, local communities, uh, we can call it citizen science, we can call it uh, engagement at the local level by universities or, or many other ways, they can help fill in the gap by looking specifically at what's happening in that context. Of course, by reconnecting it to the wider, uh, higher level uh, explanations, but also looking at what's happening in this context, because most, most mechanisms that require policy intervention are so complex that no simple model can describe them. You need to understand what's happening on the ground, and there could be even like uh, good epistemological arguments for why that deeper understanding is actually more useful than the higher level understanding and there has been a lot of critique of the idea that you can just generalize uh, policy interventions just because something worked in this context it must work in all contexts which are roughly similar and it, it's that level of like you know that sort of like division of labor of division of epistemic labor in a way uh, you need the high level but you also need the very local specific level and that's where those mechanisms can be very useful I think. Absolutely and a lot of the current projects are very much focused at a local level because that's what motivates people to get involved it's their own problems that they see um, and it, the the mechanisms for getting involved in the in the higher level experimentation it, you know it's the 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 a lot of the type the science that um, people do in their own communities um, is much is much lower cost than the the kind of you know the, the theoretical or the particle physics experiments the large scale big data experiments that you might see in universities and I, I don't see in a practical sense um, that gap being bridged anytime soon. What's the difference between citizen science and open science? Because open science is also a term that people, that people use. Are they the same thing? Um, so open science 
also has a variety of meanings depending on, on what you look at. But again, it's a kind of spectrum of approaches to making knowledge. Um, well, so in general, people can take it to mean opening up any stage of the scientific process, but more often it's, it's opening up access to the outputs of research. So um, papers, which is usually referred to as open access, um, but that means the journal articles, which, as we discussed earlier, are often just the kind of the very end of the road and don't reflect the work that's gone along the way. There's a bigger push now to publish data sets as well, so open, open data in science, and also the tools of research, which is an area that I'm particularly interested in, so um, hardware designs, the actual the enabling technologies to do the science, and that's, that's coming along. So all of that sort of falls within this spectrum of open science. They're, they are often conflated, but I'd argue that a lot of citizen science, um, as I mentioned before, is not particularly open in that people will come do some labour essentially for some scientists but then the data that they've generated goes to the scientists who then produce a paper that's not fed necessarily back to the participants and they don't often see their contributions. That's not true of all, all projects like that. There are some which, who really take great pains to make sure that people who contribute um, can see the, the later stage analyses of that data, can question the scientists, can have a, a kind of relationship and a dialogue. Um, but in the majority of cases, the, the kind of the open science aspect is is limited in a lot of the citizen science. So, so I, I, I think it's they they have an overlap for sure and a relationship, but they're not exactly the same thing. And the open science generally refers to things like the institutional incentives and how how academic scientists um, communicate and disseminate their scholarship, um, whereas citizen science has a has a much kind of broader. Um, social motivation, I suppose, in many cases. So it's participation rather than just dissemination. Open mm. science, we're kind of opening up the results. You can see what we found out, but that's it. We're not going to let you take part. Absolutely. And I think, I think you can stretch the definition of open science, and many people do, to include that participatory aspect. Um, but not all citizen science has the same type of participatory aspect mm. than open science advocates would um, use the term to mean. There's a related concept in the field of industrial R&D, which is that of open innovation, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the idea that while in the past most research and development within industry was done in-house, if you think of like pharmaceutical industries, they used to have really big uh, research uh, laboratories. Now it's actually a much more open process. By open means that uh, there is many more stakeholders involved. Uh, in practice, often means that let's let some startups to do most of the job, and once they do something useful, let's buy them and bring them in house. But you know, in the more positive way, it's like the idea of fostering uh, a, an environment where different groups and people, institutions all work around the same problems with different perspectives. They have access to some shared resources and they're in dialogue. And it's probably like one bigger player, uh, which will be the one who might end up, for example, like commercializing the drug, if that's the, the case, let's say. But others can bring in relevant knowledge. For example, patient groups can play a very important role. And often there is a, a fine line between citizen science and patient groups' involvement in, in scientific research. And uh, again, it's not exactly the same as open science, but <coughs> it does share some, some common points. Yeah. And I think if you take open science to its, its extreme, um, there's an interesting question about... So a lot of citizen science projects are designed as such, so they actually put in frameworks for, that, for those citizens to participate. Um, rather than designing the project 
to be open to participation from professional scientists or anybody else, and then citizens kind of joining, <coughs> making an autonomous choice to join as a participant, but without it necessarily being directly advertised to them. So there's open source malaria uh, based out of Sydney um, are a very open science project. So they're open source drug discovery, and they're, um, all of their lab meetings are streamed on Google Hangout. All of their to-do lists for the lab are on GitHub. Um, which is a, a sort of software sharing site. So essentially, um, and you can well, you can watch their lab notebooks being updated in real time online if you're on Australia time, of course. Um, so you can you get a kind of an immediate insight into all of the background inner workings, and and anybody is is avail- is able to participate. Um, that's not to say that everybody does participate, and I think the demographics of people that participate are quite what you'd expect, but um, it, the possibility is there, and they have had, um, on, a, on an educational level, they recently made headlines with a group of uh, teenage uh, high school students in Australia who came up with um, a way of synthesising Diaprim, which is a drug that's recently been hiked up very much in price, um, and there was a, there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of contention over that change, and so a group of teenagers came up with a way of essentially working around the pat- the the the, pat- the process pattern essentially, um, and so so you may not quite equate maybe high school students with citizen scientists again because they're, they, they don't choose to be at school, although I think these did actually choose to be in the science club that did the project. <laughs> but, um, but I think they, that's an interesting model for the intersection of citizen mm. and open science. Mm. Um, I, I've got to say on uh, reading scientific papers, um, they're, they're really boring and quite dull. And uh, there's a reason why they're not very kind of popular literature. People prefer to read biographies and autobiographies from scientists. So there's uh, an issue here about who uh, science is being opened up for. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also, um, you know, philosophers of science have been banging on for a long time about how complex these different bits of science are, like observation, analysis, placing data into a first-order pattern. Um, And it's quite interesting that as soon as the the citizens are given a go at doing this, scientists go, oh, well, that's just the boring part of the exercise that we're giving them. Um, So I think there's a discussion to be had about how very complex Mm -hmm. simply marking up the shape of a galaxy is. Um, And the interesting thing about the the public um, is that they point out how complex these things are very quickly because they ask questions. They, They get anomalous images. They don't know how to classify. And they'll put an ear in the scientist's. Uh, put a flea in the scientist's ear. And then that will become an interesting problem for the scientists to address in their own work. Um, there's also something to be said for um, what a colleague, Victoria van Heinig, calls the, the penguin people. Uh, so there's a wonderful uh, Zooniverse project called uh, Penguin Watch. Uh, it was going to be called Penguin Hunter originally, <laughs> but the conservationists went uh, into this idea. And you sit there and you draw crosshairs on penguins, um, and it's incredibly addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a, a, a very important purpose in terms of studying the diversity and the way in which these penguins live. Um, but people really enjoy it yeah, because it's, it's something like Candy Crush that you you can do on the tube. <laughs> um, and I think um, there's some sense in not designing away from those ends. They can be celebrated as well as the extreme citizen science, the pollution monitoring, uh, the community-based work. Um, it can be a big tent. <laughs> <laughs>
Absolutely, I completely agree. And I, I sort of did Zooniverse a disservice in my description as well for, the, for brevity, but they, they do have a whole series of, of frameworks in which people can interact, like you say. And so if you enable people, even though in, in some respects the tasks that you're giving people may be, and I agree it's not, it's not simple in many cases, but it's, it's quite constrained. Actually, if you then open up additional data and provide people communication structures like forums, you do see much more engagement. And, and Zooniverse certainly did that. I saw a talk by Chris Lintott where he said that they originally didn't want, they weren't planning to necessarily include additional data about the galaxies, like the spectra and other kind of more, more detail. Um, and they sort of put it up really just because they didn't not put it up. It wasn't a deliberate decision. And actually, some people on Zooniverse really got into it. And, and like you say, we're picking up anomalies and images. We're really going back to the data. And as a community, um, coming up with hypotheses that they were sending the scientists and to the extent that the scientists don't really <laughs> don't really have time to pursue them more necessarily um and i think but and again that's that's kind of how do you how do you design um the system of doing citizen science such that those conversations can take place with people who want to dive deeper and and really engage uh, another interesting thing about the universes so they um uh, this online platform processes huge amounts of data using citizens. Um, and they had thought that what would happen is they would take their terabytes of data, let's say their images of galaxies, give them to millions of citizens. The citizens would produce a catalogue with a first order of organisation, hand it back to the scientists who would say thank you very much, take the results and produce science. Um, what they found happens in almost every single case is they end up reading the participants' conversations in the forums that are built around the data uh, because the participants alight on the most interesting parts of the data set almost immediately and they become the, the kind of guide to the scientists through this data as to what's going to be interesting and require further attention. Well, let's take a short break and take some audience questions. If you have a question, then if you leave your hand up and wait for the mic to come to you, because we want you to be recorded on the podcast. Elias. This question is directed to Professor Molloy. Um, the first part, the second one, anyone on the panel can answer. You spoke about citizen science as participation and open science as a form of more participation or rather transparency. Do you have other examples of citizen science representing situation whereby citizens actually set a scientific agenda? And if there are no examples, or if someone on the panel feels that this would not be a good thing, how do you justify to citizens um, that they do not have a say in the scientific agenda where that science is funded publicly? Thank you. I'd say there are, there are fewer examples in terms of projects that have been set up to gather ideas for science from citizens and then enact it. But there are, um, there's something called science shops, which are set up in some universities, which are essentially designed to do just that, to allow citizens to come with questions that they want to be answered um, and to try and create capacity locally to, for, for researchers to answer those questions. Um, so that there definitely are some structures in place. Off the top of my head, I can't think of some of, of a list of projects that have come out of those types of initiatives, but there's certainly interest in, in growing, those, growing that movement and seeing how you can have um, more of a feedback mechanism. Um, I think 
certainly even in the in the more uh, traditional citizen science projects, there is uh, there is a role for ci- for citizens who are engaged to direct that research to the interesting parts or to um, to come up with their own hypotheses. And sometimes <coughs> that's that's really encouraged. There's a game called Eterna, E T R N A, and um, that's essentially a, a, a RNA folding game. Um, but the players of the game are also a- able to propose hypotheses, which researchers will test. And then, if the, if it goes, if it's interesting, they will work with those original proposers to, to you know, write the paper and, and kind of. And I think that's a really nice mechanism of rewarding um, and, and encouraging participation. But at a fundamental level of people setting um, the larger scale science agendas, I guess that's where we go back to the political process, because essentially, we in a democracy, we rep- we vote for our representatives who form the government and, and set the agenda for scientific research. Um, and it, it, I think it, I, I'd be interested if, if people do have more examples of, of a sort of more direct link between those two rather than a much higher level um, structuring of, of scientific agendas. There's a question, the gentleman in green and the gentleman <laughs> uh, behind him. Let's take two and then... Catherine, yeah, in the middle. Let's take three in a row if we can. It uh, doesn't matter who's first. We'll come to everybody, and then the panel can, can dive you. in and, and answer what they like. Um, I guess this is, yeah, slightly different question. Um, I suppose a lot of the, the examples you gave of citizen science was around um, people going out and collecting data and somehow channeling that back to scientists to then come up with a study or a paper. Um, where do you see the line between that type of interaction or participation versus... Um, you know, some of the, the instances where people collect or actually generate data through their behavior, and obviously I'm talking about, you know, Google searches, the stuff we do on Facebook, um, a, lot of, a lot of really good data that could be used in all sorts of different areas. Um, you know, is that to you citizen science, or is that some completely different? And then I guess my a question that's attached to that is, I think a lot of people are reluctant to, to share personal information that you know it's going to get commercialized and some bad happens to them and sort of what was the potential of working around that and actually getting that um that information across the scientists and i would assume that people are you know much more happy to share that with scientists as opposed to google um in terms of kind of data collecting um oh are we waiting for collating uh let's let's get a couple of questions on the table and then you can then you can dive in Perhaps, perhaps jot them down. So you know. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my question is also going to be a little different. That the scientists actually, I think, face the litmus test when they are about to sort of negate one of the convention or a status quo which has been accepted by citizens because of some maybe religious reasons or otherwise. So, at uh, my part of the world, I do see scientists often shy away from revealing the actual information. For instance, suppose uh, citizens are constructing their houses. I mean, just I'm giving an example, maybe a fictitious one, on certain directions based on certain texts and which have been, people are doing that without probably being inquisitive to know why it is so, but it has been done for centuries, for instance. In those cases, Scientists, unfortunately, don't come forward and say the truth, maybe at the risk of becoming unpopular, or 
maybe the reasons or maybe they themselves they are also citizens so they are also sometimes believers on certain conventions which they also can't reason out so i think when we talk of citizen science this aspect of science as scientists as educators need to be discussed where it is not only uh, a sort of making citizens as a part of scientific process but actually not saying away from the truth and telling the truth up front i mean there can be many examples i mean i can think of for instance you know that does happen in economics for instance when people decide poverty line i mean they think there is a magical line which can cut the population into poor and not poor which has been you know which is being done worldwide country after country without saying the truth that along the poverty line people residing will not have much difference in their living standard but one would be forcefully classified to be poor another would be forcefully classified to be non poor but the political discourse the media and the scientists here i am talking about social scientists that is economist don't come out and say that that is probably a wrong way of measuring poverty so okay, there can be many now, other examples but i thought yeah, no you another mic is coming to catherine who's in the middle in burgundy Thanks. So so far it seems that we've had like two separate discussions on the public distrust in science problem and citizen science. Um but I'm really interested in how these two things interact. And the example that I have in mind is Stephen Epstein's book Impure Science which is on um early AIDS science and the reactions of early AIDS patients when really no one had any idea what was going on. They had no idea what was causing the disease, there was no idea how to treat it and So early patients were really distrustful of the scientists and very often the scientists were doing quite bad things to them and as a result of that they motivated um early AIDS patients to really become the experts and to challenge the mainstream science and so I'm kind of interested in how these two things come together and how the distrust in science can be a real motivator for communities becoming their own kind of experts and able and their ability to challenge the mainstream scientific view on certain things thanks okay thanks so it's a free for all Can I say something about I mean this very interesting question about um I mean all the sorry all the questions are very interesting but um this question about the scientists I mean there's a question <laughs> focusing on citizens acting as scientists but of course there's a question about scientists acting as citizens as well I take it but you know you might think scientists themselves have an obligation to speak up and to speak the truth and to put forward views to policymakers two fellow citizens uh, to challenge various harmful conventions or various bad policies um and i think there's a very very interesting question here actually about the ways in which scientists responsibilities as citizens do or don't intersect with their responsibilities as scientists so one place you might see that is in the kind of climate science example where some climate scientists believe that climate scientists are kind of too scientifically reticent they should speak out more they they should speak out louder and then other climate scientists say no we we you know we can't do that if we do that we lose our status as scientists um and i don't have any useful answer to how to think about that tension but i think there is a very general problem here not just exactly on the side of a citizen scientist but on the side of a scientist citizen um how to resolve that i don't know what to say about it but i'm very sorry 
I hope someone. So, luckily, my panelists do. Um, well, yeah, of course, uh, citizens are scientists, and scientists are very often citizens, and they uh, pull from the same kind of cultural influences and flaws and uh, draws as the wider communities that they're embedded in, and so is uh, their science. Um, this gets back to my point about it being a processual system, and you know, it's not a guaranteed input-output thing. It's going to... Uh, suffer these derivations and imperfections, infidelities, um, and we always need to work towards an awareness of them. Um, and um, th- there's no simple or easy answer. Um, it's a, a much deeper problem about uh, a dialogue and conversation, I think. Um, and remembering that in dialoguing with scientists, these are human beings as well. Just to speak to the point about uh, generating data, I'd be tempted to draw quite a rigorous distinction between someone going on Google and generating a kind of internet footprint and someone participating in a citizen science project because as I sit here, I'm generating data. There's information now that's about me that's publicly available, but I'm not sort of... That's different to kind of gathering the data. So maybe generating data is sort of ambiguous. It could be bringing into being new facts about the world, or it could be gathering information about those facts. There's an interesting thing that happened. Um, So back in the day when we used to do science on humans, the humans in question would be called subjects, and people worried about human subjects as the basis of science. Uh, Now people who we do science on are called participants, and so trials have participants, and they're research participants, and there's a a sleight of hand there. I mean, there are um, some interesting developments in the kind of biomedical side of things, and uh, what surprises me is the willingness which people have for gifting their their bio data to companies like 23andMe um, and uh, the the amount that people will give up um, is fantastic. I mean, it's literally like building a, a kind of uh, biometric Facebook and people become very involved with kind of monitoring themselves through time cycles and periods. Um, whether we should then worry about whether 23andMe are being exploitative over this freely gifted data or not is uh, another question. To follow up on um, on the point made earlier about like what role should scientists play in political controversies, for example, I mean, there's often this view that the role of this, the proper role of the scientist is to provide the information. Uh, to provide the facts, and then it's up to the politicians or the policymakers to decide what to do about it. And this presupposes that you can actually separate the facts from the actions you can base on those facts, and that you know scientists can provide all relevant information, and then it's up to the elected politicians to decide what to do about climate change. The problem is that in practice, that distinction actually falls apart in the sense that, like, deciding what is the relevant information is already in a way like a political act, which is informed by many things. So there's often a risk that by presenting yourself as being a purely impartial provider of information, you're actually steering the conversation in a certain direction without acknowledging it, and you get into advocacy without really being, being even conscious sometimes, or you might be doing it 
in bad faith, you're actually trying to steer the conversation in a certain direction because you have an agenda and you're not acknowledging it. So the idea is, like, can scientists actually play that role of being purely disengaged, just producing the knowledge, and then, you know, it's up there, it's not my business what you do with it? Or should they be more open and acknowledge uh, what their sort of, like, the, the view will be? And we can think in a democracy, you could have, like, experts on side A and experts on side B, and then the political process can reconcile that. Or you can say that the role of the scientist is to be in dialogue with those that crafted the decisions in order to help them assess what their options are based on the information, rather than like, here's the information, you come up with the, with the preferred option. One might say that there is a, 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 what is referred to as co-production in a way. So there is a two-way dialogue between those that do something about the problem and those who and know about the problem and what, what's relevant knowledge in that case will only emerge from the interplay between these two which leads back to like what's the role of scientists as, as citizens uh, not only as experts sort of like up there somewhere mm-hmm. Could I very quickly also say something about the final question because I think it, it leads on to this is the station of public distrust in science uh, generating citizen science um, because well, I think it just often relates to this notion that you know, fact and value is very hard to disentangle in lots of those cases. But also, of course, it's useful to remember, I think, that we don't, we don't just trust people. I mean, you know, uh, we trust people in various ways. I might trust Peter to tell me the truth about, I don't know, how to get around the LSE. But if I know he's really clumsy, sorry, um, I may not trust him to hold a vase or something. So, yeah, I, I don't just say, I trust Peter. I say, yeah. If I say that, I mean, I trust him to tell me the way around the LSE, but I may not trust him. I think similarly with scientists, it's useful to bear in mind the distinction between do we trust scientists to figure out broadly true claims about the world? Maybe. Do we trust scientists to engage with corporations who are funding them in ways which promote the public good or the common good? Or in the AIDS case, do we trust the scientists to really take the values of patients to heart? Well, maybe not. And I think that what's often going on in these cases is lots of slippage around different kinds of trust and mistrust. But It's not exactly that people don't trust scientists to do with science, in some sense. They just don't trust the various um, institutions in which the scientists are engaged and the ways the scientists interact with those institutions. Um, So I think there is a dynamic there, but it's a very complicated dynamic. Um, There's something to be said for... um Uh, one standard criticism of science for many years has been that the scientific view is a a totalizing one which represents itself as the god's eye view right and this is why scientists don't ever need to use i within their papers because they are everywhere Um, and scientific knowledge tends to exclude and marginalize other forms of knowledge Um, and when you see projects like public lab Um, which are literally about using kites to go up and take the God's eye view of the oil spill in Deepwater Horizon. Um, Those people aren't kind of doing holistic oil mapping. They're tapping into very standard forms of pollution mapping. Um, So it's not that they don't trust science to tell them what pollution is and how to monitor it. It's that they don't trust Horizon, uh, sorry, BP scientists to be giving them an accurate picture of this. On the one hand, I think that's something to be celebrated. So, you know, everybody should climb inside the aeroplane and have the God's eye view of the world. 
Um, on the other hand, I think there's something to be said for other views emerging. Uh, so something of this point about the need for more particular, more localised knowledge, uh, which science hasn't often done well. Um, uh, there is a, a kind of fixation with you know, the law-like entity uh, within scientific inquiry. And um, I think citizen science represents a chance to inhabit some of those more particular uh, views, which in some ways aren't scientific, right? So, um, you know, I think it's very interesting that a community feel uncomfortable about the power lines above their heads. Um, and th- that sort of feeling of uncomfortableness isn't something that science records or measures well. Mm-hmm. Um, and to merely try and translate that discomfort into a scientific value, I think, would be to miss something important about that community's relationship with the pylon and the power infrastructure around them. I want to move us on, if I may, uh, to the more critical part of our discussion. So we talked about the problem, this disconnect between the science, uh, between science and the public, um, to the extent that there is one. We talked about this potential solution, citizen science. I want to open it up to a more critical discussion about whether citizen science really is able to do what its proponents claim it's able to do. Um, and perhaps we can start with you, Beris, on this. Are you sceptical or optimistic? Well, so always for the historian of science to be the the ghoul at the feast, being sceptical about everything. Uh, It's a position we take up as a disciplinary role. Um, So I was going to talk a little bit about Zooniverse, which is the project I'm closest to. We work with them, uh, my project, Constructing Scientific Communities, ConSciCom. And they've got something like 55 projects on their online platform now, everything from astrophysics to penguin watching to working with the materials at the Tate Museum. Um, and they've produced like 135 peer-reviewed papers since 2006, which is a phenomenal rate of output. Um, they, they have now uh, over 1.4 million uh, kind of sign-ups and well over a million active members, which kind of puts them behind Indonesia as the second biggest army in the world. Um, and they do things ranging from classification through to the collection of data. Um, and uh, there's even now a facility for you to go to the Zooniverse and build your own project. So have data, they will provide the infrastructure for you to show it to a crowd and get them to classify, work with it, manipulate it. Um, so uh, citizen science on those terms has been incredibly successful. Um, but if those terms are to produce science uh, and to engage people in the scientific process, um, then there's nothing very new about this at all. So back in the 19th century, um, a figure who I work on, Eleanor Ann Ormrod, part of the scientific establishment, great friends with the Dalston Hookers and the Darwins, um, she would collect 2,000 pieces of correspondence on injurious insects every year and produce uh, notes of reports of, inju- of observations of injurious insects volume that she would send out to farms around the country for less than the cost of production. Uh, in this kind of bottom-up pedagogical strategy to inform communities about entomology so they could have more productive farming and agriculture. Um, so that's kind of uh, 120 years ago, and it looks very similar to some of the things that are happening now. In fact, you can, you can spot ladybirds in this country and uh, watch out for a particular invasive type of ladybird species in one citizen science project. So... Um, 
uh, citizen science, I would say, is a, it's a, a kind of nebulous, ambiguous, difficult term, uh, which seems to have been applied to something that's been happening through much of the 20th century to greater or lesser degrees. Um, and so, I mean, what, what use is... Uh, that was my first piece of scepticism. Nothing <laughs> new happening here. Um, so my second piece of scepticism is a terrible word, not quite sure what it means. Um, and a citizen and science are two very different types of things which don't sit well together in the formation. Um, so given that it also doesn't really describe in any meaningful way the range of activities that go on within citizen science, these research projects, uh, what, what use is it to us? Um, well, I think what it, it really points up is uh, a series of questions about science, uh, should science be public or private? Should it be uh, democratic, participative, technocratic, elitist? Should it be conducted in an open-ended way or for particular social purposes? Um, and these are all questions that people want to ask the citizen science movement at the moment as though there were such a thing that could summon up its voice together and respond. Um, but they're actually exactly the questions that we should be asking of science science at the moment. And I think that's the real value in citizen science, having emerged as a movement, that it, it allows us to reflect back on the meaning of science within society. Uh, and th the difference between Ormerod and now is the structures in which science occurs. So Ormerod in the 19th century is a kind of aristocratic, independently wealthy, uh, writing letters to horticulturalists, nurserymen, farmers, and receiving them back through the, the penny post. Uh, the, the Zooniverse is a, a research outfit within a university, subject to funding structures, uh, part of the government's policy, operating in a world which involves a lot of entrepreneurial startups within the innovation economy. Um, so it's those structures around science which are new, actually, and not this label citizen science. Um, and once those structures become very obvious, as citizen science makes them, then we should start having you know, uh, conversations about what's the point of a university degree, what's the point of scientific research, uh, what's the point of a start-up company, a company uh, innovation. Um, and I think that's my, my third piece of scepticism. The, the term actually enjoins a much wider conversation that we should be having. Three chapters of scepticism from Paris. <laughs> <laughs> what do other people think? So, can I add to some scepticism and also some cynicism? Uh, I think like one has always to be very careful when something gets branded as citizen science because scientists are very clever people usually and if they spot a good opportunity for PR, they'll take it. Uh, they, if they know that portraying something as public engagement is a good thing because you get like brownie points for that, they'll do that. It doesn't mean that it's actually public engagement. It's actually a two-way dialogue. But you know, if it looks enough like it, they will go the other way. Not like in bad faith. It's like uh, it's it's a quite sensible thing to do. But at the same time, what if everything becomes citizen science? It becomes a little bit you know a bit meaningless in a way, and it's a bit too easy for like labels to be attached to things rather than actually like things to change. And I don't have a, any constructive uh, sort of like proposal about it, just saying like, <coughs> look twice. <laughs> um, I mean, to add to the cynicism, <laughs> skepticism, 
just concern. Um, I mean, to also to follow up, I think, on something Jenny was saying, which is really, really interesting, is, of course, you know, often citizens do science. But you know, what's most interesting in citizen science, I take it, is often the cases where they're doing science as citizens because they want to have an impact on policy in some local area and so on. But, of course, there's also this very different, difficult issue about there's doing science and there's being heard or being listened to. And, of course, part of the problem here is all of us all the time we decide who to trust by looking at their credentials, looking at their background. You know, even if, you know, imagine I just, in my back garden, built some wonderful particle accelerator and proved the existence of a God particle and told you, to, I mean, you know, imagine I did it really well and told you all this. You wouldn't believe me. Of course not, because you know, I don't have a degree in physics. And that's completely kind of rational and sensible. You have to find your way in this complex world. So I take it part of the problem we have is that even when citizen scientists do great citizen science, trusting the citizen scientist is hard. It involves a particular kind of leap, a particular kind of going outside exactly what's the point of the university degree, questioning the structures, where taking that leap may often be justified, but it's not always easy or obvious how you should do it. And I take it that this is just one of the kind of underlying tensions here. Um, I think that's true. There are a lot of publications justifying why you should believe citizen scientists by scientists for other scientists. Um, and I've been to meetings on citizen science where almost every presentation has been a justification of why this data is valid and all of the statistical tests that have been carried out to make sure that it you know, matches uh, a, a kind of sample of a scientist doing the data versus the citizens. So I think that's, that is a, an interesting um, thing that scientists feel they have to justify. It's not enough the citizens have done it. We have to show that it's, it's valid within our own context as well. It's interesting because like, quality control within science itself is actually quite weak. Yeah. So there's almost like a double standard in which like, the, the threshold for what counts as acceptable data is much higher mm-hmm. if it's not produced by professional scientists. And if it comes from professional scientists, just accept it. And there is a lot of evidence that actually sometimes it's quite flawed. Yeah, a lot of a lot of citizen scientists' projects take about 30 replicates as being about right. I mean, I read a fair few biology papers and 30 replicates is a lot of <laughs> something. To, yeah. there is, I mean, there is this interesting issue, right, of um, uh, how much one trusts the citizens. And uh, there was certainly a kind of, uh, uh, definitely a period, 2008 through to maybe last week, when all the Zooniverse would do was try and convince other scientists that this was uh, kosher data. Um, but uh, so if you, um, you have a, a classification, a particular science activity thing that you need doing, um, what the Zooniverse will do is show that activity to at least 15 people. Um, and if they get 15 different answers, then they know this is a really tricky problem. So they'll show it to another 15 people. Um, if they had gotten 15 answers that were all the same the first time, they would know this was a reasonably easy problem, and uh, they would just take that answer as being the one. Um, uh, so what's interesting here is that you can, if you want, just treat the citizens like a big computational process, and you can work out the fidelities of your crowd, what they're good, what they're bad at. You can give them tasks which they're good and they're bad at. Um, and one can run pretty standard science along these lines. Um, I would say what's missed then, though, is all of the stuff that the citizens 
do talk about, are interested in, get passionate about, which isn't accommodated in that process, um, which often happens in the online forums and the communities that form amongst the citizens on these projects talking to themselves. I should also say that the Zooniverse, they've run a lot of these kind of uh, analyses of how accurate the citizens are. And the truth of the matter is the citizens very quickly become better than the scientists at almost any given task. Because scientists are kind of generalists who have to do a lot of things across the course of the day, and they don't do all of them brilliantly, right? Whereas if you have just the one thing to do, you can become a complete specialist at it. Absolutely. Well, let's take some final questions uh, from the audience. We've got about ten minutes left, so if you have a question, then raise your hand. Yeah, there's a gentleman at the front. My question concerns uh, your views on the current uh, state of education, um, the GCSE level and the A level. Um, I mean, everyone gets excited when they see Brian Cox or Robert Winston and planet Earth on the TV. But I'm wondering if, if more could be done amongst young people in terms of uh, bringing them into um, a fuller awareness of how science endeavors actually affects their lives. For instance, the, the food that they eat. I mean, it's more or less accepted now that certain things, white sugar, uh, tobacco, alcohol, are really uh, very detrimental. Um, now, it, would it be would it be difficult to bring that to 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 bring that to the forefront within the within the schools? Um, now, some things like GM crops that, it's very debatable. Some things are less debatable: climate change, uh, fracking, for instance. And and what I'm saying is bring making it more practical so that people uh, that people at, within the educational system become fully knowledgeable in terms of uh, what's happening in science and how it's affecting them. Should we jump in? Jump in. Um, so I would say, I mean, nutritional science is an interesting example, right? Um, if you went about teaching kids that nutritional science was a good model of good science, uh, you'd run into problems, right? Because you'd have to tell them, oh, well, look, we've completely upended the advice we give about what you should eat. Um, and it turns <laughs> out the original advice was to do with kind of egotism, the particular career of the person who was advising against sugar and making it seem like a bad thing. So I would argue that actually nutritional science is the key example to teach of science to children because it shows them precisely how there can be problems with the process. Um, I would say though also that in, in some ways maybe kids don't need to be more aware of science these days. I mean science really is uh, a major part of our lives in a day-to-day way uh, and are thinking about how to solve the problems in the future and are thinking about our futures uh, and so I would argue for kind of getting them to think about things outside of science a little bit more. Any other questions? Can I... If, oh, if there's another question, I want to ask to answer a previous question, but if there's... I, I, I mean, I could ask all kinds of questions. <laughs> if you can wait till the mic, then we shall have uh, at, least, at least one question. <laughs> 
Yes, hi. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to bring it slightly more back to the, the question of science and, and democracy and the, 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 the disconnect and the, the big question at the moment with the distrust of, of scientists that lead to um, maybe, you know, say the, 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 the Trump administration now having uh, all kinds of uh, people at the heart of it who, who are, uh, uh, are climate skeptics, for example, and really have a, a very large electorate behind them who are perfectly happy to disregard scientists and the voice of scientists. And th there was the... Um, we started off this evening with, with the, the, the problem of connecting values and, uh, and maybe the, the kind of the, the, the more reasoned thought process. And it seems to me that the, the, the values that this science community, and certainly all of you here tonight have espoused, uh, are, are based on empirical um, fairness, um, truth, these aren't the only values out there in the, in the political world, uh, as well. In terms of democracy, um, it seems to me that your values are, are, are kind of Western, rather left-leaning, possibly, I might say, values. Um, and that there's a whole other set of values which aren't represented, I mean, and we, the, where we've seen them um, empowered in, in sort of recent uh, kind of populist democratic uh, events. Um, and I'm not sure how the scientific community are going to address all those other values, the values of, I don't know, faith and um, loyalty, the, the, other, the other values that exist out there in, 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 the, in the political democratic. Uh. I mean, I think one should be very careful here. This goes back to, I think, a point which was made um, earlier. But you find very few people who explicitly say they don't think scientific research done well will lead to true claims. So consider, you know, even you know, the climate skeptic or the climate denier, they very rarely say something along the lines of, well, you know, the climate scientists say it, but I'm just not going to listen. Instead, they will look for reasons why you shouldn't trust the climate scientist. They will say, in effect, the climate scientist isn't a real scientist. If they were a real scientist, they would do X, they would do Y. So I think there's something very odd about the place of science. In some ways, I think many people involved in these debates will, regardless of their values, claim to view science as above or beyond the values. What happens, however, is that there's a disagreement on what counts as the science which has been done well. And I don't think this is just true of you know, people who hold particular, let's say, right-wing values. I think people who hold left-wing values often deny the science around the safety of nuclear power in ways which are completely reprehensible. It's, it's clear to me nuclear power is scientifically safe. And to challenge that science, it strikes me as just misguided. So I think what's happening, though, is a very odd and interesting phenomenon, which is simultaneously people respect the, the notion of science as outside values and yet at the same time will have a kind of pick and choose attitude towards the science where their values lead them to be more sceptical about certain sciences than other sciences or more sceptical that certain, you know, certain people who claim to be scientists are really scientists 
And understanding that dynamic, I think, is, is very difficult, but very important, precisely for the reasons, I mean, for the reasons you gave. Um, Alessandro, you were going to jump in at one point. Well, it's kind of like really big issue to tackle. Uh, I think that like, there's been a lot of discussion in recent times about whether people still want to listen to experts, or we call them scientists or experts or whatever, and whether people have had enough of it. And I think like, part of the issue reconnects to what was said at the very beginning, which is that uh, science speaks usually about the general so the, 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 the universal, the average, uh, it can be, if we talk about economics, it could be about the, you know, like the GDP or it could be uh, about like average lifespan if we're talking about medicine. But people don't live in averages. People live their own experience of life. And therefore, they can rightfully see that what the scientists say in a certain context is not relevant to them and pick and choose, as was said, based on whether what's being said actually reinforces their beliefs or, or not, which is a, a quite well-established psychological mechanism that people tend to seek facts that reinforce their, their, their previous views. But I don't think that's necessarily, uh, that necessarily means that they will reject a, like the whole enterprise of producing knowledge uh, because of that. It's more like it's not enough to just have the, uh, have the facts out there for uh, people to do one thing rather than another thing. There is many more things that come into play there and whether there is sort of like a divide in values between the people that produce the knowledge and the people that consume the knowledge I think it's an interesting empirical question I don't have an answer to that on that agnostic note (laughs) more research is needed I think we I think we may be out of time thank you to everyone for coming and thanks very much for our panel